Since the Emancipation Proclamation, America has struggled to reckon with its history of enslaving Africans. Today, the legacy of slavery impacts 57% of Black Americans, according to Pew Research Center. But that legacy is multifaceted and ranges from economic and educational inequality to redlining to the justice system. For some, they say it's past time America addressed these harms with reparations. But for others, the idea is so controversial, so incomprehensible, that it's an impossible task. I'm Cheyenne Daniels, race and politics reporter for The Hill. And on this episode of The Switch Up, we're taking a look at the fight for reparations. For pro-reparations advocates, it's about how the legacy of slavery continues to impact our nation, more than 400 years after Africans were first brought to this land. But for others, it's a conversation around the legitimacy of such a plan. On January 16, 1865, Union General William T. Sherman issued the Special Field Order Number 15, the first piece of legislation in America that detailed reparations for Black Americans. In his order, Sherman declared that the islands from Charleston South, the abandoned rice fields along the rivers for 30 miles back from the sea, and the country bordering the St. Johns River, Florida, are reserved and set apart for the settlement of the Negroes now made free by the acts of war and the proclamation of the President of the United States. On the islands and in the settlements hereafter to be established, no white person whatever, unless military officers and soldiers detailed for duty, will be permitted to reside, and the sole and exclusive management of affairs will be left to the freed people themselves. Each family shall have a plot of not more than 40 acres of tillable ground, and when it borders on some water channel, with not more than 800 feet water front, in the possession of which land the military authorities will afford them protection until such time as they can protect themselves, or until Congress shall regulate their title. The order meant that 400,000 acres of Confederate land was meant to be dispersed among Black families, or at the time, newly freed slaves. But that distribution never happened. President Andrew Johnson, who not only owned slaves, but was outspoken about his beliefs of white supremacy, overturned the order before the end of 1865, and the land was returned to slave owners. Representative Al Green, a Democrat representing Texas, explained that for those who did free their slaves, they were given money from the federal government for their quote-unquote sacrifice. Many may be unaware of this repayment to slave owners, Green said, and if more people knew, it could change the discussion around the debate for reparations. Well, I think one of the best arguments is just to remind people that when the enslaved people in Washington, D.C. were freed and the enslavers received payment, that payment came from the federal government. Not all of those tax dollars came from people who were enslavers. The government paid for their freedom. Uh, and if the government can pay for their freedom with tax dollars that were in a coffer, 
that was collected from the common people in the country as well as the wealthy people in the country, then the government can do a similar thing. And that's the key. It's the government that should pay for this. Now, we all pay our taxes, so I'm, I'm not trying to avoid saying that it won't come out of the pockets of citizens uh, or people who are here and paying taxes. But I am saying to you that it's not something that will be novel because we've already done it uh, with uh, the enslavers. The argument becomes one that is very potent, it seems, when we talk about uh, the enrichment of the enslaved. But there's no argument that few people ever complain. I haven't heard one complaint about the people that received money for releasing the enslaved people. They got paid to set free people who were born free. So I, I would say to people, it's, it's very quite uh, much similar to that. And I don't think that a country as rich as ours, a country that uh, stands for liberty and justice for all, that stands for all persons being created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I don't think a country that can extol these kinds of virtues can hide behind, well, it didn't, it wasn't me, I didn't do it. Yes, I benefited from it. Yes, my, my, uh, my wealth that I have, the generational wealth that may have been passed on to me is a result of slavery, but I shouldn't have to pay for it. I think that that's a very weak argument. But the calls for reparations goes deeper than just slavery itself. It's about righting the wrongs of the legacy of slavery. One of those legacies is, of course, just the legacy of race ideology and, and racism and structural racism and, and economic disparities. That's Cliff Albright, co-founder and executive director of Black Voters Matter, an organization that builds Black political power. This year, Black Voters Matter started the Black Reparations Fund to support local grassroots groups' efforts to hold appointed reparations task force committees in their districts accountable. The goal is to push these committees to address systemic racism, including housing discrimination, police brutality, and access to healthcare and quality education. The notions of race, that legacy arguably is just as impactful as the pure economic legacies. You know, in other words, all of the narratives around race, the, the, the narratives around, you know, black people not having intelligence or history or, or, or culture at all. You know, the, the notions of white supremacy, all of the things that ideologically were built up to support that institution remain with us today and, and continue to cause economic and social impacts until this day. In fact, once we get deep into the reparations discussion, what we'll see is that some of the impacts that reparations need to correct aren't just impacts of the slavery period, but it's about the entire legacy, the Jim Crow legacy, the ongoing uh, 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 racism and structural racism and disparities. And that's also a part of the reparations demand. All of that stems from the ideological legacy of slavery. But of course, when we talk about reparations, we got to talk about the money, right? And so at the end of the day, slavery was um, an economic institution, a social and economic institution. And so this entire country benefited from the, the free labor, the free and forced labor of black folks, right? The entire country. And, and there's really very few entities that you can talk about that weren't, that didn't impact in some way. We talk about, obviously about government debt of, of reparations, but think about the industries that benefited. Think about the shipping industry, thinking about the insurance industry. Our bodies were insured, right? Thinking about the banking industry and how much financed the system of slavery. So there's a lot. Think about the states that played a role in addition to the federal government role. And so there's a lot of folks 
that uh, uh, needs to be involved in reparations discussion and reparations policy and in paying this debt. And, and from our perspective, that's part of the reason, just part of the reason why we think it's important that in addition to the federal discussion around reparations, that there's also discussion at the local level and in terms of you know all these other entities, even at the private level. That's not to say the federal government hasn't tried to push for reparations. In 1989, former Representative John Conyers Jr., who represented Michigan, introduced H.R. 40, a piece of legislation that would establish a commission to study and develop reparations proposals. In 2019, Congress held a historic hearing to finally consider H.R. 40. Author Ta-Nehisi Coates, who wrote an essay in 2014 called The Case for Reparations, spoke at that hearing. By the time the enslaved were emancipated, they comprised the largest single asset in America. $3 billion in 1860 dollars, more than all the other assets in the country combined. The method of cultivating this asset was neither gentle cajoling nor persuasion, but torture, rape, and child trafficking. Enslavement reigned for 250 years on these shores. When it ended, this country could have extended its hallowed principles, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all regardless of color. But America had other principles in mind. And so for a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. Still, it wasn't until 2021 when the House Judiciary Committee voted to move H.R. 40 to the floor for full consideration. But the historic moment came to a screeching halt when the bill failed to garner the votes needed to advance on the House floor. Many, including political leaders, stand opposed to reparations, citing arguments such as unfairness. In 2019, then-Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said reparations weren't a good idea. I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. We've tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing landmark civil rights legislation. Uh, we've elected an African-American president. I think we're always a work in progress in this country, but no one currently alive was responsible for that. And I don't think we should be uh, trying to figure out how to compensate for it. First of all, it'd be pretty hard to figure out who to compensate. We've had waves of immigrants as well who've come to the country and experienced dramatic discrimination of one kind or another. So no, I don't think reparations are a good idea. But the arguments against reparations don't stop there. The sheer cost of financial restitution is something only the federal government would truly be able to cover. Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute determined that reparations for Black Americans would cost somewhere near $15 trillion, which is the value between the Black and white wealth gap. And still, he said, concerns don't end there. The question then becomes, who is on the hook for paying those taxes? From whom does the federal government take that money to redistribute it to beneficiaries reparations? And you know, my argument is a relatively narrow one, which is that not everyone in America today who is not a black American ought to be equally held responsible for reparations. That, for example, many Asian Americans or Hispanic Americans are, are a rival since or descended from a rival since 1965. And so it is very hard 
hard to argue that they are at least equally beneficiaries of the effect, the lasting effects of slavery for non-black people. Uh, it's plausible hard to argue that they are all beneficiaries. Um, but then I argue that that extends to many white people as well, uh, whose families came here after the end of slavery in the first great wave of immigration in the 1880s. And those people are at least not equally beneficiaries. It is hard to argue should be held equally accountable for the payment for reparations. And so, you know, my job, I'm a policy analyst by trade. I think about how policy works and how it doesn't work. And I think that it is very easy for the reparations debate to get focused on the scale of the harm, which is substantial. Even if you're just talking about slavery, the scale of the harm of slavery is unimaginable. Um, and so the, the debate often focuses on these are the real harms that black Americans and their ancestors suffered rather than thinking about, OK, what are the mechanics of reparations? Uh, how do we actually end up actualizing this? And is this the most efficient way to try to bracketing this sort of question of justice and repairing harms? Is this the most efficient way to ameliorate the condition of black Americans today? And then we think about the question of justice, and this is what interests me, is is it just on the other end to say Americans who are not black are on the hook for, are responsible for covering the cost of reparations, moving that transfer from one population to the other? And as I argued earlier and I argued in the report, I think that is far less clear than many advocates of reparations make it out to be. It is it is not obvious to me that we can justify, we can, un, under the same logic that justifies transfers to black Americans, that we can justify transfers away from non-black Americans so easily. And then, of course, there is the concern of how reparations legislation passes, even as many polls indicate that some Americans don't support them. When you ask Americans about why they don't support reparations, they'll give a variety of answers. They feel like it's unfair. They feel like some amount of money has been transferred from non-black people to black people already. So a substantial amount has been transferred insofar as black people are net beneficiaries. And you can sort of play with this, but net beneficiaries of transfer spending. And they feel like they are not personally responsible for the injustices on which reparations are predicated. So it's unfair to them to say, you need to handle this situation. They sort of go, well, maybe that was my ancestors. Maybe it wasn't my ancestors at all, but you're not your ancestors. I'm not my ancestors. So why should I have to make a payment in order to undo a harm that I was not party to? But for those who are pushing for reparations, these arguments are often based on white supremacist ideology. And as Representative Al Green points out, the legacy of slavery wasn't only the work of ancestors 240 years ago. In fact, the congressman says, slavery still hasn't been fully eradicated in our country. Uh, slavery was a seminal moment in the history of this country. It has impacted not only the time when people were enslaved, but the times thereafter. Let me just walk you through some of the circumstances that have occurred since slavery that were, shall we say, offsprings of slavery. Uh, after slavery, we had what was called convict leasing. Persons who might be charged with some crime under the black codes, uh, codes designed to entrap black people, they would be incarcerated. And then a plantation owner could lease these persons uh, and they could work on that farm or plantation for some period of time. In Texas, in a place called Sugar Land, just outside of Houston, we found 95 bodies in a common grave. These persons were said to be uh, enslaved persons who were freed at some point, perhaps, and then put in the convict leasing program. Uh, this is not something that's unique. You find these circumstances around the country. Then after we had the convict leasing, 
we went on to have what we call invidious discrimination by way of segregation. There was lawful segregation in this country until about 1954. The Brown case can be seen as a place where it started to end. I don't know that it actually ended that day uh, when Brown was issued, but lawful segregation. And then after lawful segregation, we still suffer invidious discrimination. So slavery has sort of metamorphosed and it metamorphosed now into invidious discrimination that exists. And we have proof of it because the average black person uh, has wealth that is much less than the average Anglo person. Uh, in 2022, it was about 10 times less. And the average college grad who is black will make have wealth that is about uh, seven times less than that of the average Anglo grad. So these numbers still haunt us and these conditions that have through the years uh, metamorphosed into what we have now are still conditions that hurt people of color. Uh, we still find that when persons of color go into lending institutions, they can be eminently qualified, and yet they will get loans in a smaller amount than a person who is Anglo and less qualified, as well as they will get a higher interest rate than an Anglo who is less qualified. Now, this is not just my talking. This is supported with empirical evidence. So the invidious discrimination still exists. When we ended slavery, we did not end white supremacy. And some of that manifests itself to this day. You remember the Tiki torches in Charlottesville? Jews will not replace us. Well, some of those people were not enthralled with African-Americans as well. Green does acknowledge, though, that the cost of reparations could be dubbed as astronomical. And that's why he's introduced a package of legislation he calls the Conscious Agenda. He said the agenda is a moral imperative, one that delves into reparations that consists of more than financial restitution. We have concluded that it's important for us to recognize uh, those persons who were enslaved as similar to the way we recognize 9-11, Pearl Harbor having been bombed on December 7th, uh, 1941, uh, the way we recognize what happened during the Holocaust, which was a great crime against humanity. There's nothing like the Holocaust, nothing, but there's nothing like slavery either. Uh, both of them are crimes against humanity. Well. We want to memorialize those lives and honor those lives, so we should have a slavery remembrance day, just as we have 9-11 remembrance, Pearl Harbor remembrance, Holocaust remembrance. And we should do so on August the 20th, because it was on August 20th of 1619 that the White Lion, a ship that docked in near what we now call Norfolk, Virginia, it was Point Comfort at that time, it had the first 20 or so Africans that were placed into slavery in the colonies. So we want to memorialize and honored them on August the 20th annually with a slavery remembrance day, with a slavery remembrance ceremony. But that's not enough. We also want to uh, recognize them as we have recognized Confederate soldiers. In 1956, in this country, the Congress of the United States of America accorded a congressional gold medal to Confederate soldiers. Uh, these are the persons who would be called enslavers. The enslaved have not received any such honor. In fact, they have been minimized in history, given all that they did, building the Capitol, hands uh, involved in building the White House, all that they did in raising crops and, and raising children of others, well, they should be honored too. And we believe that a congressional gold medal is in order for them to be honored, just as it was done for the enslavers, the Confederate soldiers. Green's agenda doesn't stop there. It also includes renaming the Russell Senate office building, which is named after Richard Russell, 
a man who co-authored the Southern Manifesto and fought anti-lynching legislation and civil rights legislation. The Conscious Agenda also calls for institutions such as banks and insurance companies that made money from slavery to atone. Lastly, and most importantly, according to Green, there needs to be a Department of Reconciliation. We have not reconciled. After the Civil War, there was an attempt at reconciliation. Unfortunately, it died with President Lincoln when he was assassinated. President Andrew Johnson, who came into office, did not honor what uh, I believe was the Lincoln plan, the whole plan of 40 acres and a mule. Um, there was a General Sherman who issued uh, an order 45 to uh, help us to acquire this 40 acres and a mule, but it never happened because uh, President Johnson, uh, he decided that was not the appropriate thing to do. So we need this Department of Reconciliation. The Texas Democrat said he firmly believes reparations are possible. And if we could change the conversation around it just being about a financial gain that others are footing the bill for, we could see a change in the public perception around the concept. I think that atonement can be many different things. Um, a college education is valued in this country. And we know that the enslaved people were literally denied an opportunity to acquire an education. It was unlawful in many places in, in this country for persons who were enslaved to learn to read and write. Well, you don't overcome that in by simply passing a law that says in the 13th Amendment, you're now free. Those things take time to overcome, especially when that is far followed up with, with uh, segregation, with the convict leasing that I told you about, and with invidious discrimination. So we haven't made the real effort to atone. So as a result, atonement seems like it's distant and it seems like it's impossible, but it's not. Most people seem to think that slavery took place over a 10 to 20 year period of time. We're talking about centuries of free labor. If you measure that labor appropriately, if you use a proper asset test to ascertain the value, you will find that it's going to be in the trillions of dollars. So I don't rule out a, a actual compensation in dollars uh, because of the value of the labor. But I also think of something else that I don't read a lot about. But I do believe that there was a lot of pain and suffering. I was a litigator uh, before coming to Congress. And as a litigator, uh, people who are harmed by other people through negligence didn't, didn't do it intentionally. Without that intentionality, you could still get some compensation for your pain and your suffering. There has to be some compensation, in my opinion, for the pain and suffering that of 240 years of enslavement in this country that people did not invite. They did nothing to put themselves in this position, notwithstanding the fact that there were Africans who traded Africans into slavery. They are bad people. Uh, we don't celebrate them. All of this is something that took place uh, against the will of people who were doing well where they were. And many of these persons were artisans. Uh, these were not just the, the people who had nothing to do. Many of them were doing things and they brought their skills with them to this country. And those skills benefited this country for 240 years. And the pain and suffering of having families separated, having persons lynched without cause, all of this can go into reparations. And some of it, the only way you can have the atonement process take place is with dollars and cents. In this country, we cannot replace an arm if you lose your arm in an auto accident. We can't replace it. And when we can't replace it, we give you money. In this country, uh, when you are hurt beyond repair in any way, uh, we can't repair that. But we decided we'll give you money to compensate you. And I think that has to be a part of it as well. 
Green isn't the only one working at the federal level to push for reparations. Representative Cori Bush, a progressive representing Missouri, introduced the Reparations Now resolution just this year. Bush explained to the switch-up that though reparations are past due for Black Americans, our country has a hard time recognizing the wrongs perpetrated against the community. If we really talk about it, we got to talk about how out of the first 12 presidents, 10 of them enslaved Black people. So we're talking about the leaders of the country, the commanders in chief. If we talk about it, we got to talk about how James K. Polk traded enslaved Black folks from the Oval Office. If we talk about it, we got to talk about how 1,700 members of Congress, folks who, where I am sitting right now in this building, this House office building, where their offices were, 1,700 of them enslaved Black people. These are the lawmakers. If we talk about it, we got to talk about how with the Dred Scott case, the, the Dred Scott v. Sanford case in 1857, when it was uh, decided that, you know, Black people were not citizens of the United States, five of those judges who made the decision were slaveholders. So we have to talk about the history that says that the United States government was a part of the atrocities. Um, and so giving way to where we are today, because it's not just as horrific as uh, chattel slavery was and Jim Crow and, and, and even post Jim Crow as a mass incarceration. Now we bring it, we pull it forward. We have to look at the vestiges. So when we look at, again, mass incarceration, when we look at what redlining uh, has done to our communities and what it still continues to do, that is why they don't want to see it because it tells the story of how um, the leaders in this country, those founding fathers who were, um, you know, I guess supposed to be all knowing and wonderful, about how they treated actual humans and how they allowed for this and how they supported this. We often hear when it's time to take care of uh, those who have been uh, discriminated against, marginalized, who've, who've been the most pushed back and uh, overlooked, those who have disproportionately suffered the most harm in this country um, or where we're trying to fix the issues that um, affect them the most, they, then the question always comes up, well, how are we going to pay for it? And why should we pay for that? This resolution, it summarizes the history of slavery, first of all, because people, I think when people hear the full history, when people understand um, like where this comes from, I think it helps to shape, okay, well, then uh, there is something that we need to do. When we talk about Jim Crow, we were, we were talking about slavery to Jim Crow, to post Jim Crow discrimination and how the federal government played a part um, in that and how you can't benefit. This country could not benefit from the labor. And when we talk about how much labor, it blew my mind when I found out, um, because it, I, I didn't know this, that we're talking about over 222 million, million hours of forced labor 
222 million hours of forced labor to what today would be to the tune of $97 trillion. So that is part of the value of um, how the United States was able to uh, not only benefit, but how our economy was able to grow and to flourish. Um, you know, we think about how back during, um, I believe it was around like 1831, that the the sale of the raw cotton crop we were selling, we we were producing, the United States was producing more, um, a nearly half of the world's raw cotton crop. So if chattel slavery was such an economic driver, such it, it made the United States uh, such a power the federal government owes. They have to repair the harm. And you can't, when, when I think about how uh, people say, um, some, some of my colleagues in Congress will say, oh, you know, we're about law and order. So law and order means that someone perpetrates this crime. So let's say someone is murdered. They want that person to be brought before judge and jury, and they want that person put in prison. Pretty much is what they what they want to see. And I mean, that's how things, you know, typically go or, you know, that's what's supposed to happen in this country. You know, someone is tried and if they're found guilty, they they for killing someone, they go to prison. There is accountability there. Well, what we hear is, oh, even though over 12.5 million people were kidnapped, forcibly kidnapped from their own country and brought into this one. And made and, and and made enslaved, even though two million died in the Middle Passage, didn't even make it to the United States. Whether they chose to jump because they weren't going to go into and be enslaved, or they died along the way, this country owes they owe that debt. For Bush, part of this fight for reparations is personal. She's a descendant of not only enslaved Africans, but her grandfather faced the legacy of that history when he was chased out of his hometown. And there is a, a community in Pagedale, South Carolina, that is called, like there's stores and streets and um, uh, shopping centers that carry the last name of my grandfather. There's cemetery with that carry the name of my grand, the last name of my grandfather, who is the same person who had to flee that community? Because the story is, is he was said to have looked upon a white woman after he came home from fighting in World War II. He was said to have looked upon a white woman and couldn't stay in his own home, had to come, had to leave in order to save his life. I'm here today because he left. There is an obligation. And when I think about that, what that obligation looks like, the get federal government, we have the money. When the government has spent and obligated over $8 trillion on the post 9-11 wars, we spend approximately $1 trillion every year on the military budget, every year. And it's estimated that the richest fifth of Americans will receive almost $7 trillion in savings. The richest now will save that much money in savings from 2000 to 2025 because of the tax cuts. Trump tax cuts alone cost approximately $2 trillion. And so when they say, where is the money? The money is there. When we say, where is the money? We come up with money for these wars. We're, we're, we're coming up with money right now for what is happening 
in Israel, Palestine, where is the money? The money is there. Where is the priority is the question. And where is the due respect? Where is the, uh, the, the restorative justice? Where is the integrity and where is the care for a whole people that this country never even apologized to. Today, Bush's Reparations Now resolution has the support of Democratic representatives Barbara Lee, Jamal Bowman, Rashida Tlaib, and several others. That resolution says, the federal government is responsible for policies that led to the economic, political, and social erosion of Black communities. Though the federal government failed to keep Black people safe from or actively sanctioned white domestic terrorism and failed to prosecute it when it did occur, the impacts of the government-imposed segregation led to harmful health outcomes and environmental racism, and that the ongoing harms of racialized mass incarceration is also the responsibility of the federal government. The resolution calls for the support, passage, and implementation of H.R. 40, as well as an official federal apology for the institution of chattel slavery. For me, if it took 40, almost 40 years for um, just to study, just to be for people to say, OK, yeah, let's try to study um, what reparations could look like in this country. You know, um, we're we, we, we can't continue to sit there. So, yes, we need to continue to push H.R. 40, but we can do two things at once. We can also say this is what it looks like because we're in a time where people are banning books. They're banning history, uh, uh, banning uh, teaching of history. This is, we're in a time where um, the attack is against critical race theory. Uh, we're at a time where uh, people would rather have, what do we hear? Um, we, you know, it's making some of our white students feel uncomfortable, so we need to not speak on it. Um, this was something that I knew, I, that I wanted to introduce even before I ever enter Congress. It was something that I wanted to work on, even as an activist, trying to figure out how we get the support to get this done. But once I decided to run for office, I knew this had to be a part of my work. Not only talk about this, but let's get it done. Um, and I do understand that there are people that don't want us to talk about it, but when we don't push for it, we don't get it. You know, I, I worked for years with advocates in order to craft this legislation. So this is not just something that uh, we came up with overnight or um, that we just didn't really, you know, we it was just like Corey's idea. This is like my, my wish list. We worked with several groups and organizations who have been doing the deep work um, of reparations for decades. We work with them, those who, you know, have differing opinions, and we all came together to try to bring about a piece of legislation um, to put before Congress. And this, let me say, is the first ever comprehensive piece of reparations legislation to be introduced uh, into Congress. Bush said this legislation took two years to come together, in part because she and her team working with other organizations, didn't want to put something together half-heartedly. But since its introduction, the resolution has yet to move forward. Still, while the federal government struggles to enact reparations legislation, some state and local municipalities have succeeded. In 2020, California Governor Gavin Newsom created a task force to study and recommend reparations for slavery. At the time, the country was still grappling with the murder of George Floyd who'd been killed by a Minneapolis police officer in May of that year. 
After three years of research, the California Reparations Task Force voted to recommend the state officially apologize for racism and slavery and to offer down payments of varying amounts to eligible Black residents. But Newsom balked at the idea, which could have seen descendants of slavery living in the state each receive up to $1.2 million. But even before California made headlines this year, there was another city that not only approved legislation for reparations, but has been carrying that legislation out. When we discuss reparations in the context of the Black community, we are looking to repair uh, not only the crimes against the humanity of Black people, the transatlantic slave trade, but also its many legacies. That's Robin Rue Simmons, founder and executive director for First Repair, the nation's first government-funded reparations program. Robin was a former alderperson for Evanston, Illinois a northern suburb of Chicago, but she was also the chair of the Evanston Reparations Committee. And in 2019, under her leadership, Evanston became the first city to approve a plan for reparations for its Black residents. I remember it all because I called the question. So it was in fact February of 2019. I had the revelation that we were putting reparations in a box, in an HR 40 box, that we were limiting repair to the crimes of centuries ago and losing sight of the crimes of today, the harms of today. And as a local leader at the time, I was a city councilwoman. I saw how our city today was harming the Black community, how we have zoning laws that has racism baked into it that is inherited from Jim Crow era law and free redlining and uh, historic harm, and that we could address this. And the way to address it would be through reparations. We have been committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion for many years. We have, we're a welcoming city. We're very diverse. We celebrate our Blackness. And I recognize that we were doing this only really in ceremony only. We were not doing it in an outcome transformative based way because we maintain our racial gaps in every area of livability. And some of them were widening in that moment that I called the question to reparation. So in 2019, I called the question and began working with our Equity and Empowerment Commission through a process that led us to a passing of the legislation and a initial budget in November of 2019. That legislation called for three priorities, housing, economic development, and educational initiatives. The legislation included $10 million to prove the concept, get into the work, see the public sentiment, and they've now passed an additional $10 million from real estate transfer tax. And despite Lehman's concerns about polling showing opposition, 70% of the Evanston white community is in support of the practice of reparations. How Evanston is already helping other communities is showing the possibility, being an inspiration, being a partner. It is for each locality to go through its own process, to identify the harm, identify strong legislators, identify allies and partners, and ultimately come out with community-informed reparations proposals that are funded, implemented, and dispersed. And so we're seeing that happen. We hope to see more of that. And that would go up to the state level and up to the federal government. The federal government should see 
that there are localities nationwide in regions nationwide that have a appetite and the political will for reparations that racial gaps in health and wealth and education and policing continue widening in some cases. We saw the devastation of COVID in the Black community that reparations are due. Reparations are due and reparations are possible. It is happening locally, so there is no reason why the United States government that can pay reparations to many other communities, uh, many other victims of various, let's say, uh, natural disasters. We have the 9-11 Commission, reparations pay there. We have the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 paid reparations to the Japanese community for internment, rightfully so. And rightfully so, Rep. John Conyers in 1989 modeled H.R. 40 in the way that the 1988 legislation was successful for the Japanese community, but we have not seen the same commitment in this nation for the Black community. So we hope that what we're doing in Evanston inspires Congress as it has inspired other local leaders nationwide. I'm your host, Cheyenne Daniels, race and politics reporter from The Hill, and from all of us at The Hill. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Switch Up. We'll have more episodes delving into the intersection of race and politics soon, so be sure to follow The Hill on all social media for future updates, including episode drops and articles. The Switch Up was created and written by me. Script editing for this episode was done by Steph Thomas. Audio production by Christian Carter. Special thanks to our booking producer, Casey Brady.